0: it all together with the leaven of the Pharisees. Uh, this week we'll begin at verse number 13, where we left off last week, and this is a really famous part of scripture. In verse 13, the Bible says, when Jesus came into the coast of uh, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, he asked the question twice, the first time he's saying, who do men say that I am, or that I, the Son of Man, M verse 14 and they said some say thou art John the Baptist some Elias and others Jeremiah so one of the prophets so they're saying some are saying you're John the Baptist so at this time is already dead uh, some are saying you're Elias who's Elijah from the Old Testament or Jeremiah so who's the prophet Jeremiah or one of the prophets verse 15 He saith unto them, now notice, now he's asking his disciples, okay, that's what men, that's who men say that I am, but he saith unto them, whom say ye that I am? So he's talking to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Verse sixteen, and Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, for the gates of hell. Shall not prevail against it now this passage here is actually a passage that has a lot of controversy that goes with it and I'd like to talk to you about it uh, just you know we 're going verse by verse chapter by chapter through the book of Matthew making our way through the book and uh, but this this passage here where Jesus is saying, he makes this famous statement, he says, upon this rock, I will build my church and there's a lot of controversy in regards to who it is or what it is or who it is that Jesus is speaking to. The, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that this rock who Jesus is referring to is Peter. And they'll, they'll claim Peter is the rock that the church is built upon. And they'll say that Peter was the first Pope and that Jesus had given him this authority. Later talking about the fact that he would give him the keys to the kingdom. And I want to explain to you uh, what the Bible teaches here in regards to this rock. And just b- before you even begin to talk about what Jesus is saying and who he's talking to, we've we got to just get the context in Scripture. And in, in the Old Testament, it's very clear throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We'll look at both. But it's very clear who the rock is throughout Scripture. Now, if I if we were to do a study of the word, just that, that phrase, the rock, not, not talking about a rock, but the, the person, the rock throughout Scripture, there'd be so many Scriptures to look. At, we wouldn't have time to do it tonight on a Wednesday night. So I'm just going to show you a few uh, references. If you go with me to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, we could go to many other books and we could look at a lot of references. And that would be a good study for you to do uh, at home uh, on your own. But uh, tonight I just want to show you a few because uh, we don't have time to deal with it. But I want to show you in the Old Testament is a very consistent who the rock is. If you go to the book of Psalms, Psalm 18 And look at verse number 2. I'd like you to see uh, these passages. Psalm 18 and verse number 2. Psalm 18 and verse 2. The Bible says this. Psalm 18 and verse 2. The Bible says, The Lord. Now do you see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? That is Jehovah God. That is, uh, you know, the Lord Almighty. The Bible says, The Lord is my rock. Do you see that? The Lord is my rock and my fortress And my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler, and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. So according to Psalm 18.2, the Lord, according to the psalmist here, is my rock. You're there in Psalm 18? Skip down to verse number 31. Look at verse 31. Psalm 18, verse 31. Look what it says. For who is God? Save the Lord. The word save there means accept. So he says, who is God except the Lord? Or what he's saying is, no one is God except the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So if you were looking at verse 2 and you are thinking, well how do we know the Lord is God? Well in verse 31 he says, for who is God? Save the Lord. And who is a rock? Save our God. You see that? So he's saying, who is... God except the Lord, and who is the rock except our God? Look at verse forty-six, same Psalm. Psalm 18, verse 46. Look what he says. Psalm 18. Verse 46, the Bible says, The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock. And let the God of my salvation be exalted. So he says, The Lord liveth, and blessed be my rock. Go to Psalm 28. Look at verse 1. I'm just going to give you a small sampling. There's so many other verses we could look at. Maybe one of these uh, days on a Sunday morning, I'll preach a whole sermon on just the rock. And we'll go to a lot more passages. But let me just give you a few to look at. Psalm 28. You're there in Psalm 18, so just flip over a few pages. Psalm 28, look at verse 1. Psalm 28 and verse 1. The Bible says a psalm of David. Unto thee will I cry. Notice this. O Lord my rock. Do you see that? Unto thee will I cry. O Lord my rock. Be not silent to me. Lest if thou be silent to me I become like them that go down into the pit. Go to Psalm 42. Look at verse 9. Psalm 42 and verse 9. Psalm 42 and verse 9. And if you're taking notes these would be good uh, cross references to jot down uh, for the Bible study. Psalm 42. In verse 9, the Bible says this, I will say unto, notice, I will say unto God my rock. Do you see that? So according to the psalmist, who was God? He was my rock. I will say unto God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? And why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemies? Obviously he's going through a time of depression there where he's asking God like you and I often ask God why have you forgotten me when he hasn't. But the point is this, that he says I will say unto God, my rock. Go to Psalm 62 look at verse 2. Psalm 62 and verse 2. Psalm 62 and verse number 2. Psalm 62 in verse 2, the Bible says this, Psalm 62 in verse 2, he says, He only is my rock and my salvation, he is my defense, I shall not be greatly moved. So it says that the he who is my rock is also my salvation, is also my defense, and I shall not be greatly moved. Same Psalm, skip down to verse 6. Psalm 62 and verse 6, look at what it says. He only is my rock. He says again, and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. Skip down to verse 7, or I'm sorry, the next verse 7. Psalm 62 verse 7. Notice what it says. In God is my salvation. Now, in verse 2 and in verse 6, He said, He is my rock. He's my salvation. In verse 7, He says, in God is my salvation. Do you see that? Because He's talking about the same person. The rock is my salvation. God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my Refuge is in God. Go to Psalm 78. Look at verse 16. Psalm 78. In verse number 16. And I want you to notice something in Psalm 78, okay? Psalm 78 in verse 16. Psalm 78 verse 16, the Bible says this. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. So he says he brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Go down to verse 20. Notice what he says in verse 20. Behold, he smote the rock "...that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed, can he give bread also? He can provide flesh for his people." Now, in Psalm 78, he is referring... Do you remember the story in the Old Testament? Remember Moses, when he was leading the people, the, uh, the children of Israel, out of Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness? Remember one of the times that they complained about the fact that they did not have water? And God told Moses, he said, G- you know, go talk to the rock, and then he told him to, to do the different things with the rock, and anyway... Moses ended up hitting the rock and water came out and the people were able to drink water from that rock. That is a reference to the story. He says streams also uh, he said he brought streams also out of the rock in verse 16 and verse 20 he says behold he smote the rock that the waters gushed out. Now notice look at verse 35 same psalm. Psalm 78 verse 35. So he's talking about this rock that they brought water out of to to feed the children of Israel in Psalm 78 in verse 35 the Bible says this and they remembered that God was that rock. Do you see that? So the idea there is that that rock represented God because God is where we get the source of everything. God, if you're alive, if if you're here tonight, it's because God allowed you to wake up this morning. Everything that you have and everything that you are is because of God. And that was that picture there that that rock represented where He gushed out waters in the midst of the desert. The idea is that that rock represents God because God is often referred to as the rock. Psalm 78 verse 35. And they remember that God was their rock and the high God of their Redeemer. Now, keep that in mind, okay? And go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I just want to show you something real quickly as, as we're talking about the rock, okay? Because in Psalm 78, you have the rock that Moses used to gush waters out for the people, right? And in Psalm 78 35, we're told that, the, that God was their rock. Are you infer? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at verse 1, okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse number 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 1, the Bible says this, moreover brethren, now this is the Apostle Paul speaking through inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and notice what he says. He says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. Now, remember, that is a reference to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Remember, they a couple of Sunday nights ago, or a few Sunday nights ago, we talked about the fact that they uh, were under the cloud and passed through the sea. Look at verse 2, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 2. And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat that same spiritual meat. Look at verse 4. And did all drink the same spiritual Spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock. Now remember, in Psalm 78, they drank from the rock, and we we're told that God was their rock. In 1 Corinthians 10, 4, the Bible says, And they all drank the same spiritual drink, and they drank that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was who? Christ. It says Christ. Okay, so here's what's interesting. In Psalm 78, they, they, it talks about the rock that they gushed waters out, and it says that God was their rock. And in 1 Corinthians, we're told the same story, the same rock, but we're told that that rock was Christ. You say, well, I thought the rock was God. Well, here's what you understand. Christ is God. Amen. And that's a good uh, cross-reference there in regards to the fact that Jesus is God and the deity of Jesus Christ. Because today, you have the cults like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness that are trying to teach that Jesus was not God and that Jesus was not deity. Well, listen, Rock was that, the, that rock was Christ, according to Paul, and according to the psalmist, that rock was God. So how do you connect those two? Well, Jesus is God. So, the rock is, according to Paul, Jesus Christ. I mean, is that not what it says? That rock was Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, the rock was God. In the New Testament, the rock is Christ, who are one and the same. Okay, let me ask you this. Who did Peter think the rock was? Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Towards the end of the New Testament, and we'll get back to Matthew. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 2. Who did Peter himself? Because the Catholics say, well, Peter is that rock, and that, that, the church is going to get built on the rock who is Peter. But let me ask you this. Who did Peter think and believe that rock was? Are you there in 1 Peter? Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6, the Bible says this. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6, the Bible says, Wherefore, also, it is contained in the Scripture, behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone. Now, I don't have time to go through the references. You can study this out on your own. But that chief cornerstone is always a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can study that out through the Old Testament and New Testament. But he says, I lay in on a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him. Believeth on who? On that chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Verse 7. Unto you, therefore, notice Peter's talking, and he's saying, you know, he laid a chief cornerstone. He that believeth on that cornerstone shall not be confounded. Verse 7, he says, unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. Hey, if you believe on that cornerstone, Jesus Christ is very precious to you, isn't he? He said, Unto you therefore which believe, He is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders is allowed, the same is made, the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling. So for those of us that believe on Christ, he's precious. For those that do not believe on Christ, or that are disobedient to the faith, He becomes a stone of stumbling. Notice what He says, And a rock of offense. Do you see that? So he's either the chief cornerstone, or he's a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So according to Peter, who's that rock? That for some is a chief cornerstone, for others he's a rock of offense. But who's that rock? Well, he's the one that we are to believe on. So who is that? Jesus Christ. So who did Peter himself? Did Peter believe that he was the rock? He said, no, 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 the rock of offense, that's who we believe on. That's the chief cornerstone. Okay, go back to, go, go to Matthew 16. So, you've you got to get the context of Scripture. And, and you've got to be very uh, careful. Uh, Brother Clint and I were out holding this Saturday. and We had a, a, a good conversation with a, with a young man. And, and, and the, the guy was smart and he was sharp. But here was his problem. He would take one verse. And this is how most false doctrines are, are, are made. You take one verse, pull it out of Scriptures, take it out of context. And you got to understand, the Bible must be within its entire context. So, here's the thing. If in the entire Old Testament, the rock is God... And in the entire New Testament, the rock is Christ. You can't just say, well, in Matthew 16, the rock is Peter. You understand? That doesn't make sense. It all has to connect. Are you there in Matthew 16? So let's see what Jesus actually said. Matthew 16, look at verse 15. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? So He asked His disciples, whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ. The Son of the Living God. He said, You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You, are the, you came forth from God. You are God in the flesh. He says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Now, notice verse 17. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art. Now, here's why we love the King James Bible, okay? Do you see this word thou? Okay? We don't have that word in our modern English. That's why we can't modernize scripture. Because the difference between thou and you is this thou is singular. You is plural. See, today you and I, I would use the word you to talk to one individual or I could use the word you to talk to a a group of individuals because we speak a dumber English than the English of the King James Bible. Okay, you just need to understand that. In the Bible, whenever Jesus used or anyone used the word thou, you know they're talking to one person. When he said, Go ye therefore into all the world, we know he wasn't just talking to one person, he was talking to all of us because the ye is plural. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? Right. So here he says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjuna. So is he talking to all the disciples at this moment? No, he's not. He's talking to Simon. Because he doesn't say, blessed are ye for giving me the right answer. He says, blessed are thou. So we're we're listening in on a conversation between Peter and Jesus. He says, blessed are thou, Simon Marjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed, notice this word, it. Okay? Revealed what? What is that it referring to? He's referring to the statement that Peter just made. Because remember, he asked them, whom say ye that I am, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto them, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven revealed it. Revealed what? The fact that you understand and you comprehend and you believe that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the, 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 the subject is a statement. Do you understand that? Look at verse 18. And I say also unto thee, singular, that thou art Peter, and upon thee, is that what it says? Okay, now listen to me. Upon this, do you see the word this there? What is this referring to? Upon this rock, right? But the this there, is that Peter? Now here's the thing. The only way that this could be Peter is if Jesus was talking to the disciples about Peter. Do you understand what I'm saying? If he was talking to the disciples about Peter, and he was saying, Hey upon, hey guys, upon this rock, Peter, I'm going to build my church. But we already established that Jesus is not having a conversation with the disciples. He's not having a conversation with Peter. He's a thou. He's at thee. So if he was talking to Peter, he would have said, I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon thee I will build my church. But he's not talking about Peter. But this is referring back to the it in verse 17, which is referring back to the statement in verse 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So when Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church... What was he referring to? He was referring to that statement. He was referring to that truth. He was uh, referring to that doctrine. The fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That He is the Christ. That He is the Messiah. And by the way, that fits with the rest of Scripture. Which tells us that the rock is God. That Jesus is the rock. And here he says, hey, that rock, hey, that nugget of truth. That idea that I'm the Christ. That I'm the Son of the living God. Upon that statement, upon that thought belief system upon that rock, I will build this my church. This is what Jesus is teaching. He's not saying, I'm going to build this rock upon you, Peter. He's not saying, I'm going to build the entire New Testament church on the shoulders of Peter. Now listen, I like Peter. Peter's one of my favorite characters in the New Testament. I, I, I think all of us probably... Uh, Identify maybe a little more with Peter than we do Paul. You know what I mean? I love Paul. Paul's great, but you know, Paul Paul's a little too too perfect. You know what I mean? I mean, he made mistakes, but Peter he's always putting his foot in his mouth. We'll see that in a little bit. He's always making mistakes. I like Peter. I, I have nothing against Peter, but Peter is not the rock. Jesus Christ is the rock. He says, "Thou art Peter," and upon this rock, upon this idea, upon this statement. This belief and isn't that the primary belief of our if we did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of Living God, would we believe anything or would we have any reason to even meet together? I mean that is the foundational truth of our Christianity. Is that this man, Jesus Christ, was not just a man. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was deity. He was the Son of God. That's the foundational truth of our belief system. So doesn't that make sense? That Jesus would say, hey, upon this rock, that statement, upon that thought, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So who is is Jesus referring to when he says this rock? Well, he's referring to the statement that Peter made. Not Peter, but the, the truth that was revealed unto him. And uh, let me just give you a few, few cross-references. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Okay, Matthew chapter 8. Because some of you, you know, um, my wife was Catholic. You know, she was raised Catholic. Some of you raised Catholic. Some of you have friends that are Catholic. And you may, this may be a conversation that you have. So I want you to be able to show them a few things. Matthew chapter 8, will say, well, Peter was the first pope, okay? Well, let me show, prove to you why Peter could not have been the first pope, okay? Number one, the pope is not married. In fact, none of the Catholic priests are married. And the Bible says, beware of the doctrine of devils when they forbid people from marrying and all those things. One of the qualifications of being a pastor is to be married. So I don't understand how you make those connections. But in Matthew 8, and even you say, well, they're priests. Well, in the Old Testament, the priests were married. Okay, so I don't know how you make those connections. But in Matthew chapter 8, look at verse 14. Okay, here's what we know. Popes aren't married. Here's what we know about Peter. He was married. Are you there in Matthew chapter 8? Look at verse 14. Matthew chapter 8 and verse 14. And when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, He saw His wife's mother laid and sick of a fever, and He goes off to heal uh, Peter's mother-in-law. But notice what we find out about Peter. He had a wife, okay? So, could Peter have been the first pope? Wouldn't have qualified to have been the first pope of the Roman Catholic Church because the Roman Catholic Church, Pope is not married. Peter was married. Go to Acts chapter 10. Let me show you one more thing why Peter could not have been the first pope. Acts chapter 10. Today, when people meet the Pope, or when Catholics meet the Pope, they bow themselves before the Pope. So, sometimes they kiss his ring, or they do different things, but they all, every Catholic bows before the Pope. Okay, let me ask you this. Did Peter allow people to bow before him? Acts chapter 10, look at verse 25. Acts chapter 10, just real quickly, verse 25, Acts chapter 10, we'll get back to Matthew here in a second. Acts chapter 10, verse 25, notice what it says. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him. Remember, uh, the story of Cornelius, the angel Lord appeared to Cornelius and he called Peter. Peter's coming to preach the gospel to him. He's coming into his house now. And as Peter was coming, Cornelius met him. No, notice what Cornelius does. And f- Cornelius is an unbeliever. He's not saved yet. And Cornelius fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Do you see that? And by the way, that's what worship is it's to fall down on your knees. If you study the word worship in the Bible, it's always somebody bowing themselves, humbling. Today, you got all these. Liberal churches that oh we're gonna have a worship service and they refer to music. The Bible calls worship when you bow yourself before God. If you get down on your knees and pray before God, you're worshiping. That's what the Bible says. This man fell down at his feet and worshiped Peter. Look, look at verse 26. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself like so also am a man. He said, Don't don't bow to me, don't worship me. I'm just a man. He said, I'm here to teach you about the rock, Jesus Christ. So did Peter accept worship? No, he didn't. Do popes today accept worship? You say, well, they're not worshiping. Well, the Bible calls worship when someone falls down before their feet. So, was Peter the first pope? I don't think so. He was married. He didn't accept uh, worship. Go to Matthew. Go back to Matthew 16. And the statement is not about Peter. The statement is about what Peter said. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee. He said, upon this rock I will build my church. It was what Peter said, not who Peter was. Go back to Matthew 16. Look at verse 18. Let's look at the last part of verse 18. And I say unto thee, thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. And I want to just highlight this for you. And I don't want to talk about it too much because we're going to talk about it a little bit with verse 19. But notice what Jesus said. He said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now I think a lot of people misunderstand this phrase. Because a lot of people uh, will preach this or teach this. And they'll say this. See, uh, when hell is attacking you. And a lot of people like, you know, they'll get emotional and say. When you're under attack of the devil. The, the, you know, it's not going to prevail against you. When hell is attacking you. Or hell is attacking the church. It's not going to prevail against you. But notice that hell is not the one doing the attacking. The gates of hell. Do you see that? Okay, are gates something that you carry around with you? No. A gate would be something that would be surrounding hell. So notice, Jesus isn't saying, when hell attacks the church, the gates of hell should not prevail against it. Jesus is saying this, church, when you attack hell, you understand that? We're on the offensive, we're attacking hell, and when we're attacking hell, the gates of hell should not prevail against it. When we'll I prevail against us. Here's what that teaches us. Our church is to be on the offensive, attacking hell. Well, how do we attack hell? Well, remember from Isaiah, hell hath enlarged herself. How do we attack hell? When we keep souls from going there? See, you say, why does our church believe in confrontational soul winning? Because Jesus said that we're supposed to be attacking hell. And I don't know how else to attack hell other than getting people saved so that hell will stop enlarging herself. Look at verse 19. I will give unto thee, he's talking to Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven now again the Roman Catholic Church says Jesus gave Peter the keys when he founded the church and and they'll teach that the the Roman Catholic Church is the one who decides who goes to heaven and who goes to hell you ever heard this term before being excommunicated Okay, that's when the church decides, you're not going to heaven, and we're going to not allow you into heaven, we're going to excommunicate you from the church, therefore you are not going to heaven. That's what they teach, if you don't believe me, look it up, Google it, okay? That's what they teach, go talk to a Catholic priest. Most Catholics don't know what the Catholic church teaches, but look at Matthew 16, look at verse 19. He says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now let's talk about these keys, okay? There are six references to keys mentioned in the scripture. There are six references to keys in the scripture. I'm just going to give them to you real quickly. We're not going to look at the references. If you want to jot this down in your notes, you're welcome to do that. The first key is mentioned as the key of the house of David in Isaiah 22. Verse 22, we'll deal with that in Isaiah 22 when we get to it. The second key is the kingdom of heaven, which is mentioned here in Matthew 16, 19. The third key is the key of knowledge in, uh, found in Luke 11:52, which Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of, re, of taking away the key of knowledge from the people because they're putting them into this false religion and not allowing them the ability to come to salvation. The fourth key is the key of hell and death, mentioned in Revelation 118, which is the keys that Jesus has when he conquered death and hell. The fifth key is again in Revelation the Key of David. Revelation three seventeen talks about the Key of David. This is the same key mentioned by Isaiah in and Isaiah twenty two verse twenty two, which is the house of the keys of the house of David. And the sixth mention is the Key of the Bottomless Pit, which is the key to hell, which is more than likely the same key mentioned in Revelation 9.1 and Revelation twenty and verse one, which is the keys that I was talking about, uh, the keys of hell and. Okay, so those are the different keys that you find in scripture. One of the keys is to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So here's a question, okay, what is the kingdom of heaven? And I'm not preaching on the kingdom, I'm I'm preaching uh, uh, a sermon on Matthew 16, 19, so I'm just going to give you this quickly, you can study it out on your own. I might preach a whole sermon on this at some point on a Sunday morning, but let me just give you a few things to think about, okay? If you study the phrase out, kingdom of heaven, in the Bible, okay, number one, Do not allow dispensationalists to tell you that the Kingdom of Heaven and the Kingdom of God are two different things. They, the, the dispensationalists, and if you don't know what that means, good, okay? Don't worry about it, it's dumb. But, but dispensationalists try to make up all these rules, and it's basically anytime you find a verse to disprove one of their dumb doctrines, it's, it's just kind of their catch all. Well, you're, you're looking at the wrong dispensation, and just kind of catches it. You know, anything that disproves them is like, well, you're looking at the wrong dispensation. It's like, you know, it's made up, it's not real. Uh, you can study that out on your own if you'd like. But. They'll say the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are two different things. Okay, here's a problem with that. The Bible uses the words kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God interchangeably. So, they're the exact same thing. Okay, number one. Number two. The kingdom of heaven is a place, okay? The Bible talks about entering into or being in the kingdom of heaven, okay? So the kingdom of heaven is a place. I bet you can guess what the kingdom of heaven is. It's probably heaven, you know what I mean? Like where we go when we die. Okay, so the kingdom of heaven is just heaven. But number two, you also got to understand this. The Bible seems to kind of teach this idea that the kingdom of heaven is made up of believers. Because it's anyone who's under the authority of God who would say God is my king and I'm in his kingdom. Because the Bible does uh, seem to teach in, in some of the parables that Jesus taught that the kingdom of heaven is growing. And that individuals kind of become the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is a place, okay, heaven. People go into it. They enter into it. But it's also just the believers. We make up the kingdom of heaven. So, the reference to the keys of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 16, 19. What is Jesus talking about? Well, it's obvious if you look at the context. If you look at the fact that He said the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. And if you just understand Scripture, you know. and You just kind of read the rest of the Bible. It's pretty clear that Jesus is saying that Peter, I'm going to build my church. Okay? He said... And here's here's what's interesting, okay? It is not my job and it is not your job to build this church. You gotta find, you know, sometimes people get they, say, Pastor, sometimes you say things and you and, and you preach things and you yell and people don't like it, and we got some liberal music in here, we got rock concert, this church would grow. Look, it's not our job to build a church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Okay? You say, Pastor, are you interested in church growth? Look, I'm interested in church growth as far as Jesus Christ is doing it. Okay? You say, Pastor, what is our job? Our job is to charge hell. Our charge is to take, our job is to take the kingdom of uh, the, the keys of heaven and help people enter into the kingdom of heaven. What is that so one? Yeah. It's when we go out and we preach the gospel and when we get somebody saved, they enter into that kingdom of heaven and they will one day physically enter into the kingdom of heaven in heaven. So what is Jesus telling Peter? Here's what Jesus is telling Peter. He said, don't worry about building the church. He said, I'll build the church. You just worry about one thing. You keep people out of hell. And you make sure people get into heaven. He said, here's the key. You have it already. It's the belief that I'm the Christ that's living up. That's the idea that Jesus is teaching. It's, and you say, you know, it's just about soul winning. Look, it's always about soul winning. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's all about soul winning. That's like the primary number one thing. You ask Jesus, what did you come to do? And he said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't say, I came to sit around some table and have a, you know, home Bible study. where we get." He didn't say, I came to come, you know, have a rock concert. He said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Go to uh, Matthew 16, verse 20. Let's, let's move on because we got to get through this chapter I don't want to spend more another week in Matthew 16 look at verse 20 then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ now here we kind of have a transition in the book Okay, we kind of begin a new part of the, of, uh, of the book. And he's telling them, you know, don't tell anybody I'm Jesus Christ, verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. So Jesus is beginning to prepare his disciples, telling them, look, I don't know if you guys are, are getting the hints that I'm dropping, okay, but I'm going to die. Okay, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to crucify me, this is what's going to happen. Now, notice notice what our first pope begins to do, Matthew 16, verse 23. But he turned and said unto Peter, here's our first pope, uh, oh, I, I'm sorry, look at verse 22. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, okay, saying, be apart from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Now, here's what's funny about this phrase, okay, and look, I like Peter, alright. But Peter took him and began to rebuke him, telling him, you're wrong, Jesus, What is he telling him he's wrong? Saying, be afar from thee. Be far, what far from thee? The fact that Jesus said, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. And Peter's, you know, he's trying to do a good thing. He's saying, no, 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 you're not going to die. We're not going to let this happen. But here's what's funny, okay? The Bible says, Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, be afar from thee, Lord. Do you see the word Lord there? Now, the Lord is not the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Jehovah God. This Lord is just the capital L Uh, small case O-R-D that's just a title saying boss or saying you know you're the master okay here's what's funny Peter's rebuking Jesus and he says be apart from the Lord here's what's interesting okay if he's the Lord then you don't rebuke him you understand that and if you're rebuking him then he's not the Lord Do you understand that See we we say Jesus Christ is my Lord okay well Jesus told you to go slow I'm not going to go slow but that's not for me okay then he's not Lord you understand that because if you're rebuking him, he's not Lord. And if he's Lord, you don't rebuke him. You just do what he saying. But the Bible says there, Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. He says, look, you're not going to die. You're not going to go. We're not going to let it happen. And notice verse 23. And he turned and said unto Peter, this is a famous statement, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now, some of you think that I've been picking on the Catholics a little too much tonight. So let's shift a little bit. I'm going to stop picking on the Catholics. Let's pick, let's pick on the Pentecostals and the Charismatics. Okay? Because this is a, a phrase, this is a verse that the Pentecostals and Charismatics, they love to use. Okay? This get thee behind me, Satan. And, and from time to time, we use it joking around, you know, about people. You know, and you might say, to your mother-in-law or something. Get thee behind me, Satan. You know, I don't know. But, um, you know, the Pentecostals, they actually teach this and preach this. And they'll say, you know, they'll say, when you're getting attacked by Satan, you just command Satan, get thee behind me, Satan. And, and you know, he's going to leave you and he's going to do whatever. Okay, now here's what's interesting, okay. If you're, go, go, to, go to Ephesians chapter 6, just real quick. We're almost done. Ephesians chapter 6. We got 15 minutes and I think I can do it in less than 15 minutes. Ephesians chapter 6. And let me, let me see if I can give you the visual, okay. If Satan is attacking you, all right. And, and, and you've been listening to your Pentecostal charismatic preacher on TV. And he said to tell Satan to get thee behind me. Okay, if Satan is attacking me, is it better for, he, for him to be attacking me from in front? Or should he attack me from behind? If I say, Satan, you get behind me. If he's behind me and he's attacking me, is that better or worse for me? Now this may be a little silly, but I want you to just understand, you know, the Bible. Are you there in Ephesians chapter six? Okay, look at verse thirteen. In Ephesians six, we find the armor of God that we're taught about to take on. Well, look at the verse. Ephesians six thirteen. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. Okay, so the Bible says this is the whole armor of God. This is it. There's no more. Okay, but take the whole armor of God that you. And there is Isaiah refers to this, and there's a. a like a cape of zeal and all that. But, but this is what we usually refer to when it comes to talk about the armor of God. It says that you may be able to withstand in that evil day, and having that all to stand, look like at verse 14. Okay, so here's the armor of God. Stand therefore, having your, number one, loin skirt about with truth, and having on the, number two, breastplate of righteousness, and, number three, your feet shod with the presentation of the gospel of peace, and... Uh, Verse 16, number 4, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Verse 17, And take the, number 5, helmet of salvation, and the, number 6, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now here's what's interesting about the armor of God. Notice there was no covering for your backside. Everything is, is to protect you, From the front. You say, well, why is that? Because we're supposed to be on the offensive. We're already talking about that, remember? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We're not running. We're not retreating. In fact, Jesus, when He gives us the armor of God, He says, I don't have anything to protect your backside, so you better not retreat. You better not run away. He says, if all you can do is stand, then having done all, stand, and do everything you can to stand, but don't retreat, because I'm only protecting your front side. The church is supposed to be on the offensive. That's what the teaching is. Okay? So here's what's interesting. The Pentecostals say, Satan's attacking you, tell him to get behind me, where I don't have any protection. You understand that? That's kind of silly. So well, what is Jesus saying? Go back to Matthew 16. Now I want you to notice this, okay? Matthew 16, look at verse 23. Matthew 16, verse 23. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me. Okay, who's the me there? That's Jesus. He's like, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, does, does Jesus think that Peter is Satan? Obviously not. Okay, Peter was a believer. He's not possessed by Satan. Here's what Jesus understood. And here's what Jesus acknowledged. And, and by the way, let me just, this is a practical lesson for us. This is the same guy that just a minute ago said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus got excited and said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven ever. Look, one minute you can be on fire, you can be doing right, you can be saying all the right things, and then the next minute you can be, you know, get thee behind me Satan. that. That just ought to be a lesson for all of us, you know. Take heed lest you fall. All right, because Peter, one minute he's the man, and the next minute he's saying the wrong things, and Jesus is having to rebuke him. All right, but here's the thing: Jesus understood that Peter was under satanic attack. Now, he wasn't; Satan wasn't in him, but obviously Satan was influencing him. Satan was getting him to believe certain ways, whispering in his ear, saying, "Hey, tell him, not rebuke him. Tell him he's not going to go to the cross. No, we don't want him to go." So, here's what Jesus does: Jesus sees Peter being attacked by Satan. Says to Satan, get thee behind me. Talk about Jesus. Because look, when you're under satanic attack, you don't want Satan behind you. But behind Jesus, that's a good idea. You know where I want to be when Satan's attacking? I want Jesus between me and Satan. And by the way, it's always about Christ. Remember uh, uh, when Michael was fighting with Satan, he said, the Lord rebuked thee? He he does not rebuke him. He said, I'm not going to dare rebuke you, Satan. But I'll let Jesus rebuke you. It's always about Jesus. It's not get thee behind me, Satan. It's, it's, hey, can you get behind Jesus so that Jesus is between you and me? And by the way, that's always a good place to be. So Jesus said, get thee behind me. So don't let these Pentecostals tell you to let uh, Satan behind you. Maybe that's why they're so messed up because they're getting attacked from behind. Look at verse 23. But he turned and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. Satan... Uh, for thou savorest. The word savorest means to enjoy the flavor of. He says, thou savorest, or you, you enjoy the taste of, not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So he says, you're an offense to me. And by the way, here's how you become an offense to Jesus. When you enjoy the things of men more than you enjoy the things of God. Now notice verse 24. Because this all, the, the ending of this kind of all goes together. Verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples... If any man will come after me, let him deny. Okay, the word deny is referring to, you know, take, you know, not not allowing yourself, if you're denying yourself, look, let me put it this way. I don't have to deny myself of broccoli, you know what I mean? Because I don't like broccoli. <laughs> So it's not, there's not a denial issue there, okay? But I do have to deny myself uh, drinking a Coca-Cola every day. You know what I mean? Because I like that. So d- denying yourself, the idea is there's something you'd like to do, but you're uh, disciplining yourself not to do it. Now this is what Jesus said. If any man will come after me, talking about being a follower of Jesus Christ, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save... His life shall lose it. That idea there is, the guy that wants to en- savor his life, the guy that wants to enjoy his life, you're just going to end up losing it. And whosoever will lose or deny his life for my sake, shall find it. You say, well, how does that work? Well, here's how it works. Verse 26. For what is a man profiting? If he gained the whole world, and loses his own soul. Here's what he's saying. began the whole world to lose its own soul. And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? But notice notice the the, the contrast verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in his in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. So those that denied themselves, those that did not savor, those that sacrificed for the cause of Christ, there's coming a day when the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Here's what Jesus is saying. The only way to profit for eternity's sake is to not profit in this temporal state. See, you can can have all the fun you want here, but look, it's like we talked about Sunday morning. 70 years, 80 years. Life is but a vapor. It appears for a little time, vanishes away. Wouldn't you rather deny yourself in this short time and have eternal rewards to show for it? That's what he's saying. He's saying, go ahead and save your life. Go ahead and savor it. But he said, you're just going to lose it. It's going to amount to nothing. But he said, but if you deny yourself, he said, I'll come back and give you eternal rewards. Matthew 16, 28 says, Verily I say unto thee. There be some standing here which shall not taste of death, till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We're actually going to deal with that verse next week when we get into Matthew chapter 17. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for our church, Lord, and thank you for allowing us to just get together on a Wednesday night, study your word, and be able to dig some truth out of the Bible and Your word is always on time. And it's always what we need. And Father, I pray that today, tonight, we would have learned something, that maybe there would be something in this text that we uh, maybe didn't understand before, that we understand now, or uh, that would encourage us, that would help us. Lord, help us to be a church that is not worried about building it. We want to see our church grow, yes, but help us not to be overly motivated by attendances, Lord, help us to be motivated by reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, taking people out of hell and letting them into heaven. Help us to be motivated by doing the work that you've called us to do, which is to seek and to save that which was lost, to, to take on that ministry of reconciliation, to to, uh, to stand in your stead and preach the gospel. Help us to be keep the main thing the main thing, and we'll just let you deal with the rest. We love you, Father. In your precious name I pray. Amen.